I'm reminded that for so many, this time of year that we call the holidays, everything between Thanksgiving and the new year, that for, for many of us, it's a time of joy and excitement and being merry. And, and for so many of us, that, that comes really naturally. And maybe that's you this morning. And maybe you're, you're feeling all the feels. And, and you, you have no trouble being merry and jolly and happy and excited. But for others, every time we turn around and every time somebody tells us to be happy or to have a happy this or a happy that or to be merry or to have a merry this or a merry that, it's, it's difficult and it's painful because you're experiencing a crisis. Maybe you're in the middle of a crisis right now or maybe it's a crisis that's long past. Something that happened a year ago or two years ago or five years ago or ten years ago and it's just something about this time of year leading up to Christmas that, that brings out all of those feelings that anger, resentment, bitterness, fear, shame, whatever it is that you're feeling. And, and when we're feeling those things, it makes it really hard to celebrate. In fact, we kind of want to push celebration aside or push it away or say, that's not for me. I can't celebrate. I wish I could celebrate, but I can't celebrate. How can you celebrate when you're feeling shame? How can you celebrate when you're feeling fear? How can you celebrate when you're feeling sadness? How can you celebrate when you have all of this heaviness in your heart? But, but I, I want us to realize something incredibly important. That the celebration of the good news isn't just something you can participate in if you're feeling these things. And it isn't even that it's especially for you if you're feeling these things. It is that it is exclusively for you if you're feeling these things. Let me say that again. The celebration of the good news about Jesus is exclusively for the brokenhearted. It is exclusively for the sad. It is exclusively for the ashamed. It is the, the exclusive possession of those who mourn and weep and are hungry and are thirsty. This celebration of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do through Jesus, it belongs exclusively to those who weep. After all, God can only wipe away the tears of those who weep, right? Isn't that what the good news is? That God is wiping away our tears, the good news is that God is wiping away our tears, and God can't wipe away the tears of those who don't weep. God only wipes away and can only wipe away the tears of those who weep. So, so if you can tap into that sadness, or you can tap into that fear, or you can tap into that shame, or whatever those feelings are, and for some of us, that's hard because we're a little bit distant from that, or, or maybe it's been a long time since we've thought about our shame, or it's been a while since we've, we've thought about our, our mourning and our weeping. But for others, it's right there on the surface, especially right now. The good news is that the good news 
is exclusively for you. As you feel that pain and that suffering, as you feel and think about that crisis, this story about Jesus coming into the world isn't a story about Jesus coming into a perfect world where everything was happy and merry and jolly and everything was just all right and good and everything was nice and easy. It's a story about a family in the very middle of a dark and difficult and challenging crisis. But it's, it's there that God, God meets us. God meets us in our darkest moments. And very often, the very best moments that have ever happened and the very worst moments that have ever happened intersect with one another. And that's true on a grand scale, and it's even true in our life. That our darkest moments, our worst moments, and our best moments often intersect with one another. And that's what this series is all about. I want to start first, though, by talking about Nazareth, this this little village where Mary and Joseph were from, the, the village where Jesus grew up, this, this village that was in Galilee. And it was a place that apparently when you said you were from Nazareth, people kind of <clears throat> scoffed. And they, they didn't think it was a very good place to be from. It wasn't, it wasn't impressive. It wasn't a place that came with honor. It wasn't a, a place that came with prestige. It wasn't a place that anybody bragged about or boasted about. This little village, and, and when I say little, archaeologists say that that probably the population of Nazareth when Jesus was born was about 400 people. So imagine every man, woman, and child in Nazareth could sit comfortably in this auditorium. Every man, woman, and child in the entire village could sit comfortably in this auditorium. So if you can imagine a world without television or social media or anything else to distract you, what do you think people talked about in, in the village? Everybody else's business, right? And whatever you were doing or whatever was going on in your life, everybody knew about it because you lived in a very small village and everybody knew everybody else's business. And, and in that culture, we tend to think of ourselves as very much individuals. In that culture, they were very much part of families and tribes and villages and communities and nations. And they thought of themselves as being part of a collective group. In fact, even marriage itself... Even marriage was a very collective activity and experience. When two people got married, that was the culmination of years and years of planning. When two people got married, it was because years before, their fathers had probably sat down and they, the families had arranged the relationship and they'd worked out all the details and they had negotiated everything. And then probably about a year before the wedding, there was an official ceremonial betrothal. We, we talk about engagement, and guy gets down on his knees, and he proposes to the girl, and, and the girl says yes, and then they're engaged. It wasn't like that in, in ancient Israel. It was something that the families had arranged, and, and the, the woman would probably agree to this betrothal. And so everything was signed and sealed and official, and they were officially bound to one another. When, when they were betrothed to one another, this was a, a community agreement, this was a family agreement, this was a legal arrangement where they belonged exclusively to each other, but the marriage was not consummated for probably about a year. And so they, they were 
engaged and they were betrothed and they legally belonged to one another, but they didn't come together and they didn't go with anybody else until the, the wedding took place. And then after the wedding, the, the bride would come and would be in the house that was prepared for her, in the room that was prepared for her. But until that time, until that time, they, they were legally betrothed. So if you've got your Bible, look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Let's kind of put ourselves in ancient Nazareth and think about what Joseph might have experienced. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So imagine Joseph's family and Mary's family had, had worked out all of the details. They had negotiated everything. There had been a ceremony. They had been officially betrothed to one another. And the whole village knows about it. Everybody knows that Mary and Joseph are betrothed to one another. They're not supposed to be together. And they're not supposed to be with anybody else. But they are betrothed to one another. And everybody knows the situation. And it says before they came together. So before Mary came to live in Joseph's home... But he was probably spending that time, probably about a year, spending that time investing, spending that time building, spending that time preparing. And so imagine all of the expense, all of the energy, all of the expectation that Joseph had that soon there's going to be a wedding and I will be able to bring my bride to my father's house when I've prepared a room for her and everything is ready and everything is prepared and everybody in the village knows that this is what is going to happen. But then it says, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So in other words, it, it became obvious. Joseph realized that she was expecting now, we know, we know the child's from the Holy Spirit, right? Matthew lets us know what's going on here, that Jesus is from the Holy Spirit. But do you think Joseph knew that? Joseph didn't know that. So what was Joseph to think? What was Joseph to assume? All of the planning, all of the preparation, all of the expense, all of the arrangement this wasn't just between him and her. This was something that involved the whole family. It involved the whole village. Everybody knew and everybody was expecting them to get married and, and for them to have a, a righteous and holy and traditional marriage. And now all of a sudden, all of that is out the window. And not only, I'm sure, did Joseph wrestle with how he was personally feeling, but he also had to ask himself, what, what is everybody else going to say? What is everybody else going to say? What is everybody else going to do? This is illegal. This, whatever took place with whomever it took place, it's illegal. It's against the law. Not only is it breaking our traditions, but it's breaking God's law. And whatever she did and whoever she did it with and whatever has happened here, it's not okay. And now everything has changed. Can you imagine the fear, the anxiety, the shame? That Joseph must have been feeling. Look at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So in order for this, this betrothal to be annulled, there had to be an actual legal ceremony that took place. Well, let's kind of walk through what are Joseph's options. And I, and I go through this with you because... 
we all sort of find ourselves in these kinds of situations, don't we? Situations, we, we describe it as between a rock and a hard place. Or we, we say, I'm in a no-win situation. And you probably know what that feels like, don't you? To be in a situation you would describe as a no-win situation or a situation you say, I'm between a rock and a hard place. There really are no good options. So on the, on the one hand, Joseph, and he doesn't even really seem to even process this option. This really doesn't seem to be an option that he seriously considers in the beginning, and that is to marry her anyway. That, that really is not an option for him. Why? Well, because it's going to be obvious, not only to him, but to everybody else, that's not my baby. And, and, and if it is his baby, then he's in trouble. And, and so marrying her anyway means sharing her shame. Mary's going to experience some pretty severe shame in the community. And for Joseph to marry her anyway means he's going to share that shame. He's going to share that burden of shame where there's going to be people talking and there's going to be people whispering and there's going to be people making accusations. And so Joseph doesn't even really seem to consider that possibility. There is, on the other extreme, the possibility that he could put her to open shame. He could put her to shame, meaning... He comes out publicly and says, that's not my baby. I don't know what's happened here, but this isn't right. And the entire community shames her. Uh, at the, the worst extreme, she could even be stoned. That probably wouldn't have happened, but she would certainly have been shamed by the entire community. In modern terms, we call that canceling somebody, right? That's nothing new, by the way, canceling somebody. That's exactly what would have happened to Mary. She would have been canceled from everything from family, from the marketplace, from the synagogue, from everything. She's, she would be a sinful woman, kicked out, excluded, publicly shamed. But then there was sort of a, a, a compromise somewhere in the middle, and that would be to quietly divorce her, which is what Joseph kind of settles on. It says, you know, there's, there's still going to be whispers, there's still going to be innuendo, there's still going to be people talking, but at least this way we can kind of put it under the rug, we can kind of distance ourselves from it, we can sort of manage it. But all of these options are about managing the shame. They're all about managing the shame. And in our culture, it's a little bit different. We don't understand shame as much as they did, but guilt and shame we sometimes mix up with one another. Guilt is where you have a feeling that you've done something wrong, Shame is when you have a feeling that you don't belong. Guilt is when you know, I've done something wrong. Shame is when you feel like, I don't belong. And it could be because you've done something wrong that you don't belong, but it could just be that you haven't lived up to the community standards. And for one reason or another, the community says, you're not like us. You don't really fit in. Maybe because they think you've done something wrong or maybe for some other reason, but we don't accept you. Have you ever felt like that? Or been afraid of that? Been afraid of being rejected? Been afraid of being shamed? Been afraid of being put out? And that's exactly what Joseph is trying to manage. His own shame, what are people going to say about me? And also Mary's shame. He's too merciful to put her to open shame. He's too righteous to marry her anyway. So how do we manage this shameful situation? How do we walk out of here and save face? How, how, do, we, how do we go on with our lives after everything has interrupted it? 
And again, I say all of that because we find ourselves so often in very similar situations with this desire to save face, with this desire to sort of posture, with this desire to manage how people perceive us. And this is the the rock and the hard place in which Joseph finds himself. Look at verse 20. It says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, here's, here's the good news, right? Here's the good news. You will call his name what? Jesus. And what does Jesus mean? Jesus means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. God saves. It says when, when this child comes into his destiny, when he becomes everything that he's going to be, when he accomplishes his mission, not only will he take away your shame, but he will take away all of his people's shame. See, shame is something that so often we, we share. Sometimes we have a personal shame, something that makes it so we don't feel like we belong. Sometimes we have a a family shame, maybe because we feel like our family doesn't belong. Sometimes we can even have a national shame. And Israel certainly felt all of those things. Personal shame, family shame, national shame. And the angel says to Joseph, Jesus is going to take away his people's sin. He's going to save them from their sin. He's not only going to take away your shame, not only as the the stepdad to the Messiah will he take away your shame, but he's going to take away his people's shame. He's going to turn their shame into honor because Yahweh saves his people. And he will save them from their sins by reconciling them to God. It says in verse 22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew takes our minds back to the days of Isaiah, hundreds of years before. And in Isaiah's day, the king, King Ahaz, was afraid of his enemies, and so God gave them a sign, a sign of Emmanuel. I am with you. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the ultimate Emmanuel to say, even in the midst of your crisis, even in the midst of your heartbreak, especially in the midst of your heartbreak, especially in the midst of your crisis, especially in the midst of your shame, I am with you. I am with you. Other people may not understand you. Other people may reject you. Other people may put you outside of the synagogue or put you out of the community or put you out of the family, but I am with you. I am with my people and I will save you from your sins. And Ahaz needed that encouragement in his day. Joseph needed that encouragement in his day. And you need that encouragement in your day. I am with you. 
I'm with the brokenhearted. I'm with the ashamed. I'm with those who can't seem to lift their face. I'm with those who feel like they have to hide. I'm with those who've been rejected. I'm with those who are poor in spirit. I'm with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I am with my people and I will save you from your sins. I will save you from your shame. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. He did what for him would have been the most difficult option. He took her as his wife, which meant he was going to have to share the burden of shame. Oh, I suppose they could go around saying, oh, oh no, no, you're misunderstanding. That baby's from the Holy Spirit. It, no, no, it's a Holy Spirit baby. It, it, she was a virgin. No, I mean, I'm, I, they could try to explain it. But until Jesus was raised from the dead, how many people you think believe that? So Joseph was commanded to do what for him was the most shameful option, was the most difficult option, which was the heaviest option. Now imagine, imagine if Joseph had woken up from the dream and he would have disobeyed. He would have said, that's, that's just too hard. Maybe that was just a weird dream. Maybe I ate something bad last night. I don't know what that was, but... I don't know that I can do this. And he would have gone ahead with his plan to save face, to manage his appearance, to sweep it under the rug, to divorce himself from her and from the situation. What if he would have done that? Well, I know for a fact God still would have saved his people, amen? Jesus still would have done what Jesus came to do, but Joseph would have failed to participate and to be part of it. See, he had to choose. He had to choose between, do I try to save face or do I embrace God's saving grace? And he names his son exactly what he was told to name him, exactly what he was commanded to name him, Yahweh saves. God saves Joseph didn't try to save himself from the situation, but trusted in God to turn his shame into honor, to take away his shame, to vindicate him. And you know what he did? He did exactly that. God vindicated him. Here we are. We know what an honorable man Joseph was, but Joseph probably had to spend the rest of his life with whispers and gossip and innuendo. Jesus probably had to spend his life with people whispering about his illegitimate birth. But Joseph chose God's grace over his own saving face. And that's what the gospel forces us to do. The gospel forces us to choose between our own saving face and God's saving grace. Doesn't it? The gospel forces us to choose. Will I, will I keep on being proud? Will I keep on posturing? Will I keep on pretending? Will I, will I keep on trying to give people the impression that 
I'm not as bad as I seem, or my family isn't as bad as we seem, or my country isn't as bad as we seem, or whatever it is, will I keep on being proud? Will I keep on posturing? Will I keep on pretending? Or will I surrender myself and my name and my reputation to the Lord? See, those were the two groups of people that interacted with Jesus throughout his ministry. There were those who were proud and arrogant who simply wanted to save face, both personally and collectively. The the Pharisees wanted to save face personally. Who does this guy think he is? Saying that we're sinners in need of repentance and forgiveness. We're righteous. They wanted to save face personally, but they also wanted to save face collectively. What are people going to say about us if this Jesus doesn't shut his mouth? What are people going to think about us if if he keeps saying he's the son of God? We've got to protect our reputation. And church, this, this still is the problem, isn't it? When in pride and in posturing and in pretending, we try to save face, both individually and collectively. Lately, I've heard so many stories about churches across the country where something bad will happen in that community. Maybe it's a preacher, maybe it's a leader, maybe it's someone else, but bad things will happen in a church community. And instead of exposing it and dealing with it and seeking repentance and forgiveness, people will try to cover it over, force the people that have been harmed to sign non-disclosure agreements and say, don't talk about this. We've got to push this under the rug. We've got to save face. So we... We have this tendency to do that as groups. We have that tendency to do that as individuals. But the people that Jesus saved, the people that embraced Jesus, the people that responded to Jesus were the people like the tax collectors, were the people like the prostitutes and the sinners, the ones who had been rejected by the community, the people who knew their shame and who had no interest in posturing. They had no interest in pride. They had no interest in pretending. They were real and they were vulnerable and they embraced God's saving grace. See, the gospel forces us to choose between our saving face and God's saving grace. Grace, we got to stop pretending. The church, we've got to pour contempt on all our pride. The church can't be a place for pretending. The church can't be a place for posturing. This is what we have in common, isn't it, church? Our need for forgiveness. You can't be baptized and save face at the same time. The moment you're baptized, you give up trying to save face. You say, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm a broken individual. I come from a broken family. I come from a broken country. Everything about me is broken, and I need forgiveness, and I need mercy, and I need grace, and I can't save myself, but Yahweh saves. God saves. The Lord saves. Jesus saves. I can't save myself by pretending. I can't save myself by posturing. I can't save myself by trying to save face. But when we admit our brokenness and our need for grace and forgiveness, God meets us there. 
He meets us there in the midst of our darkness. He meets us there in the midst of our brokenness. He meets us there in the midst of our shame, and he turns our shame to honor. And Jesus isn't ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters to say, they're my people. And somebody might say, well, Jesus, don't you know how messed up they are? And he says, I know, and they're my people, and I died for them. But don't you know what they've done? Yes, I know what they've done, but they're my people. And I'm glad to call them my brothers and sisters. But we, we have to admit our sin and our guilt in order to experience that kind of claiming by Jesus. Every time we confess our sins to each other, you can't save face and confess your sins to each other. You can't save face and, and ask your brother or sister to pray for you in your struggles. But so often, that's exactly why we don't do it. That's exactly why so often the front pews stay empty on Sunday mornings. Isn't it? We want to save face. I, I don't want people to know. I don't want people to see me. I don't want to be that vulnerable. That's why the elders could stand in the prayer room on Sunday mornings and so many of us walk right by and we know we need prayer. We know we need to invite someone into the situation we're enduring. But we're ashamed. And instead of taking our shame to the Lord, instead of surrendering our shame to the Lord, we try to save face. We pretend. We posture. We have pride. And the church can't be a place where any of that is allowed to continue. No more pride, no more pretending, no more posturing, no more trying to save face, only God's saving grace. Confessing to each other, ready to put Jesus on in baptism, ready to say, I am broken and I need what only God can give. So now's your opportunity. There's no shame in not coming forward but there's no shame in coming forward. There's no shame in saying, I'm broken and I need prayers. I'm broken and I need to repent. I'm broken and I need forgiveness. My family's broken. My tribe is broken. My group is broken. And I need the Lord. There's no shame in that. In fact, there's honor in that, in that vulnerability, in that honesty, in that transparency. The Lord in his saving grace turns that shame into honor. So let the Lord exalt you by humbling yourself before him. And if we can be a part of that in any way, our shepherds really would love to pray with you and visit with you after service in the prayer room or right now, you can come forward as we stand and sing this song.